He is risen. He is risen I like how you're so responsive. I mean, this is awesome. I've got to keep with this Resurrection Sunday thing and have this type of interaction every Sunday. I'd love that. One thing that uh, you will learn as you grow in your faith and become more familiar with the scripture is that the book that you hold in your hand is of one purpose. It has one primary thrust, thrust. It is an overarching theme, and it has one story. Uh, that is what you learn as you begin to get the scriptures into your heart. It's all one story. This, this book contains the story of how a, a loving God <clears throat> exalts the glory of his grace by redeeming and restoring unbelieving rebels like you and me. That's what's in this book. It's, it's this one long, beautiful story of a loving Heavenly Father who reaches down into our lives and changes us for eternity. It's really a divine love story, really. It's a story that, that gives purpose to your life. It, it's a story that brings hope in any situation, no matter what it is. It's a story that profoundly affects everyone, whether or not you believe the story. The, the climax is, of course, what we're celebrating today, the physical resurrection from death to life of the creator of all things. In order to accomplish the objectives of this story, the creator had to become one of us. You know the story. He had to become one of his own creatures and, and live among them and die to pay for all the wrong things that they had done or thought. That's what had to happen in order to accomplish all that we're celebrating today. And then, of course, reversing the laws of nature, he came back to life three days after he had died, and the story is celebrated every single Sunday around the world, but especially on Easter Resurrection Sunday. We get dressed up in a special way, like me, today. I mean, I, someone told me they didn't know who I was they, <laughs> earlier. They, what's with the tie? And I, I told them that I wear a tie at least once a year, and then to any funeral of people that I like. So. <laughs> well, most sermons preached today are going to focus on one of the last four chapters of the four Gospels. I'd like to come at Easter today from within Psalm 119. I want to see if we can uncover the truths of the resurrection from the study that we're currently in. And I think that you'll see that this, in fact, is all over Scripture, including Psalm 119. And, and we can do this, of course, get to Easter from Psalm 119, because it's one story, right? This whole book is one story. It has one purpose. It has, really, one hero. And he finds himself everywhere in the Scriptures, including Psalm 119. First, let's think about what the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is all about. That's the first thing I want to unpack for you. It seems like we might not have to do that, but let's, let's just begin here at the very beginning. Number one, the resurrection begins with life. Now, do I need to say that to a room full of people who are here to celebrate the resurrection? That, that resurrection begins with life? But let me, let me 
if you will, unpack this a little bit. What is resurrection without life? Is that possible to believe? Well, starting in Psalm 119, the theme of divine initiated life is all over Psalm 119, verse 17, 25, 37, 50, 88, and 93 speak of God-initiated life. Let me read for you just verse 17. If you have your Bible, you'll want to be in Psalm 119 because I'm going to spend a lot of time there today. But verse 17 says this, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. How am I going to live? If God deals bountifully with me, that's how I will live. In scripture, there are physical and spiritual sides and ramifications of the resurrection, both physical and spiritual. And we're gonna see this as we work our way through Psalm 119. First of all, let's think about the physical side of life or the physical side of the resurrection. Physical life, of course, is integral to the resurrection of Jesus. Without the physical resurrection of Jesus, every other benefit from Jesus is moot. No physical resurrection, no forgiveness of sin. No physical resurrection, no heaven. No physical resurrection, no Christianity. No physical resurrection, no Jesus. No physical resurrection, there's no God. This is very important to us, <laughs> the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, if you can disprove the resurrection, you can disprove Christianity. And so we hold tightly to this truth of the physical resurrection of Christ. There had to be a physical resurrection, which is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14. He said, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All tied to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a requirement. And of course, in order to be resurrected, he had to actually be dead, right? God had to be dead, the God-man. And you think, well, of course, why, why bring that up? Well, because a lot of people say he wasn't. A lot of people who are critics would say, well, he was just in a coma, or he was a little sleepy after that long day that he went through, or maybe he was faking it or just unconscious. No, he had to actually be dead. His coagulated blood had to have settled in the bottom of his body. His eyes would have shriveled along with his brain and every other organ. Rigor mortis would have completely stiffened his body by this time. But the moment God revived Jesus's body, he came back to life. His heart was immediately restored and began to pump this life-giving blood throughout his regenerated vascular system, which took oxygen back to his brain and restored his lungs and revived his organs completely. He went from death to life in a moment, very similarly to how Lazarus came back to life. One minute he was dead and decaying, and the next he was alive and rejoicing because of God. And of course, this is all possible, particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because we're talking about the author of life. He, he created life, and if he created life, he can certainly recreate life, don't you think? And this is exactly what happened. 
And this miracle of his resurrection was the pinnacle of all of Jesus' miracles. And there were many, right? We know the stories. We can read the New Testament. He had some very impressive miracles. He healed thousands of people. He fed thousands of people by creating food. He dismissed evil spirits from possessed people. He turned water into wine. He calmed a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. He walked on water. He restored sight. He regenerated crippled limbs. He had some pretty impressive miracles. But all of them, nothing compared to rising from the dead. This is the closing argument of his deity, rising from the dead. It proved that he is God. It also is the confirmation of the gospel, meaning that good news of God in Jesus Christ can actually forgive sins. He can restore life. He can give life. He can reconcile everyone who comes to him by faith. And one day he will resurrect all believers' physical bodies unto eternal life. He can and will restore physical life to everyone who believes in him. How do we know that? He proved it. He himself came back to life. Now, keep in mind, others have done significant miracles in the history of mankind. Others have healed people. Others have demonstrated control over the elements. Some have even raised other people from the dead. Remember those in the Bible? Elisha did it. The Apostle Paul did it. But none of them who did any of those other kind of miracles, as great as they were, raised themselves from the dead. There is the distinguishing mark. There is the fact of his deity. He could raise himself from the dead. Jesus' physical resurrection is critical to the story. Psalm 119 doesn't really refer to the physical resurrection per se, unless it's included in the verses about the promises of life. But it does speak of how God is behind our physical well-being, behind our physical life. Did you know that your life right now, sitting right where you are, is dependent on a loving creator? According to Hebrews chapter 1, he said he sustains all things by the power of his word. And it seems that Psalm 119 affirms this, verse 25 and other places. But let me read for you verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. The psalmist's life was dependent on God. Unless God acts, our physical lives are in jeopardy, literally. The author of Hebrews, like I said, mentioned this very thing. The resurrection must begin with physical life. But it doesn't end there. It goes next to spiritual life. Spiritual life. Even though Jesus' physical resurrected body is critical to the resurrection story, spiritual life is really a big part of the story, wouldn't you think? Yeah, oh, we, we're going to have the physical resurrection awaiting us, and we will live forever in the next life with a resurrected physical body. Aren't you looking forward to that? The next life, living forever with a flawless physical body? I'm personally looking forward to that. But this is exactly the story. The way to experience spiritual life or physical eternal life with God in glory forever requires a spiritual transformation, a spiritual life to be born in us. 
here and now. Or that future physical reality will never be in the presence of God. So the spiritual life is also a wonderful and, I would say, primary benefit of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is seen all over Psalm 119. Let me, let me break it down into two parts. First of all, it comes from God as a gift, this spiritual life. It comes from God as a gift. He must grant it. Psalm 119, 18. Speaking of spiritual life, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. How are you going to behold wonderful things in God's law? By him opening your spiritual eyes. He has to perform that miracle. Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. How are you going to be obedient to the, the, the call of God, obedient to the commandments of God? Well, God's going to have to regenerate, enlarge your spiritual heart. He's going to have to replace that heart of stone with the heart of flesh, make you spiritually alive so that you can obey and follow faithfully. It is from God. It comes as a gift. The theme of spiritual life as a gift of God continues throughout Scripture, of course, most famously in Paul's letters. He says this in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Next line, it is a gift of God. Spiritual life, faith, is a gift of God. And then in his letter to Timothy, second letter to Timothy, first chapter, verses 9 and 10, he says, Who saved us, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Here he's referring to the story again that I talked about earlier. He, he does all this for his, his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How did he abolish death? The resurrection, all right? This is what Jesus has accomplished. And he gives this spiritual life as a result of his physical resurrection as a gift to those who will put their faith and trust in him. Have you done that this morning? Secondly, not only is the spiritual life a gift from God, but it overflows from God's abundant, generous bounty. It's just like an overflowing cup from God. It, he, God is full of this life and, and joy, and it overflows him to his people. Anyone who gets near him gets this. Why? Because he's the author of life. Psalm 119, verse 17, the author says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. That, that spiritual life, that, that faithful, obedient spiritual life is a result of that overflowing bounty from God. You know why you are successful at obeying the commands of God when you are? It's because of God's overflowing bounty. God gives you the desire, the willingness, the interest in pursuing an obedient, faithful life. 
And then in verse 58 of Psalm 119, I entreat your favor with all my heart. What? His favor. He entreats, he, he pleads for God's favor. Be gracious to me according to your promise. This, this gift of spiritual life from God is a result of the overflowing bounty of God to his people, seen right here in Psalm 119. Paul also speaks of this, same story, different human author, Romans 8.32. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is generous. God is bountiful. God wants you to come into his presence so he can forgive your sin, bless you in the beloved, restore you into a relationship with himself. He gives it as a gift, and it's an overflowing bounty to anyone who will come. So the resurrection not only begins with physical life and results in spiritual life, but to get to point number two, the resurrection was promised. And I included this here simply to confirm in your mind that this wasn't uh, a, a new plan, a, a second attempt of God to get things right in this story. This has always been part of the original story, the only story. The resurrection of God the Son was prophesied millennia ago, which demonstrates that this has always been on God's heart and mind, part of his plan, written into the original script of the story. Psalm 119, verse 116 and 123 speaks of this. Uphold me according to your promise, that I may live and let, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. What's the promise? The promise was of a risen Savior. And I'll, I'll get you to that in a second. We know from studying Psalm 119 that the word promise is one of eight synonyms that the author uses uh, to refer to God's word. But he intentionally uses this synonym promise to refer to the great promises in God's word, the greatest of which, of course, is a coming savior. That, that was on the heart and mind of every Jewish person. And it made its way into Psalm 119. You remember how this promise was originally given, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, God met with them after their sin and explained to them the problem of their sin and the justification for his judgment upon their sin. But in that same conversation, you remember the promise? That he would send a savior. He would send one who would take care of their sin problems, would reconcile them to him. Back in Genesis 3, verse 15, that promise was made. That far back to our first parents, it has always been part of God's plan the promise of a savior, a risen savior. Then, of course, throughout the Old Testament, God began to drop hints as to the person, nature, and work of that savior and all that he would accomplish and sprinkled throughout the Psalms and, like I said, every book in the Old Testament, but particularly in the Psalms. And then in Psalm 119 also, we have references to this promise, the promise of a coming savior, the one who would redeem us, the Redeemer of Israel, 
he's called by many of the Old Testament authors. Psalm 119, 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. And of course, God's steadfast love is nowhere more clearly seen in the arrival of and work of the promised son. That's clear to us, it was clear to them. The promise of a savior and how he would save became more and more clear to human beings the more, as more and more scripture was being written. The more scripture that was written, the more hints and, and signs of this coming promised son became evident and understood. It, it was first promised that it would just be a human being. Uh, God told Adam and Eve that they, this Savior would come from Eve, and then it would come from King David's line, and then he would be a king, and so forth and so on throughout Old Testament. By the time Jesus showed up, we know exactly who he is which is why John the Baptist could say, behold, look at this guy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew who he was. How? Because he was revealed in the scriptures. He's also revealed, this promise rather of this savior is revealed in the New Testament. The apostle Paul wrote, of course, after Jesus was born, after Jesus died and after he rose from the dead, the Apostle Paul wrote this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now look at that next line. According to the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. The Savior, the Messiah, died as was prophesied in the Old Testament he would. That he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. His resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament according to the scriptures. Paul knew it and he referred to it. Peter knew it and referred to it in his first sermon in Acts 2. Just after he got through referring to Psalm 16, which King David wrote, and in Psalm 16 referred to the risen Savior, Paul said, I mean, uh, Peter says this to those listening to him in Jerusalem on that day. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that, both he, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. David is still in the tomb. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Who, who saw this? Who was speaking of it? King David. <laughs> 1,400 years before Christ was talking about the Savior that would be born and die and come back to life. It was prophesied. So the resurrection of the Messiah was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus the Messiah himself also prophesied about his own resurrection in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus flatly, plainly told them, this is what's going to happen. It was promised. Thirdly, 
the resurrection, which is the centerpiece of the story that I'm referring to, produces results. You sitting in this room is one of those results. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ produces results. Let's look at Psalm 119 again, verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. The, the only way that we can know God's steadfast love is through the promised Son and his resurrection, the promised risen Savior. That's the only way we have in, any understanding of or interaction with the love of God towards us, his cre creatures. Then in verse 123, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. So God's righteous promise was that he would send a savior to forgive our sins and restore us to a right relationship with God, but first he must die and rise again. All over the Old Testament, all over Psalm 119. A dead savior is of no value to us. Remember, no resurrection, no salvation. It, was been in the, it has been in the plan of God since before one person ever breathed one breath. The eternal plan of God, it started in eternity past. Romans 6, 5, Paul realized all of what I've been saying, and he said this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, in other words, if, we've been, if you're in Christ, and you're united with his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Since Jesus our Savior died and rose again, when we die, we too will rise again, is Paul's explanation. And then in verse 11 of chapter eight, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. What a benefit, <laughs> what a great result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus was raised from the dead and because of that we too will rise after we die. So the question is this, this morning, are you in Christ? I know you're in church, but are you in Christ? Those two different things are different, right? They're, they're different completely. Now you may be here because you're in Christ, or you may be here because your wife keeps bugging you to come. Which is it? Are you here because you are in Christ? Have you run to him with your sins and confessed your sins and, and grabbed hold of the promise of God, the person of Jesus Christ? Have you embraced him as your God and your savior? He is your only hope. He is your only hope of a future in heaven. He is ready and able to receive you if you'll just come. Many, I should say some, after having attended church for a long time in their life, uh, resist the, the urge, I think, to come to Christ and make a public profession of faith because they've been in church for so long. It would be embarrassing for me to have to admit that I've been in church all these years and never knew Christ. 
And so I'm going to, don't do that. Just because you finally understand the gospel, even though you've been in, in church your entire life, is no reason, in fact, it's foolishness to not turn your life over to him at this moment. He's calling you right now to come to him, to leave your self-directed life, your self-absorbed life. Don't turn away from the call of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave produces salvation for all who will come to him by faith, not those who know about it. The second result is worship. The first result of the resurrection of Christ Jesus to physical life is salvation. What a glorious result. But the second is also good news, worship. Once you've believed in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, worship, according to Scripture, seems to immediately follow. It's what happens to those of us who've been regenerated. All of a sudden, we're drawn to worship this one who died for us. We're actually drawn to live our lives for him, which is a form of worship, according to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Your life changes forever once you come to Christ by faith. Your life becomes consumed with him, making much of him, and doing all that you can to exalt him. This is called worship. Psalm 119, 32 I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will, my life will be a form of worship, an act of worship by my obedience once you have regenerated my heart. Worship follows the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you encounter the resurrected Christ, you immediately fall down in worship. This is what Paul was referring to when he said, live your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Listen to this from Matthew 28 and how an encounter with the risen Lord affected those who encountered him. Matthew 28, five through nine, you've heard this read a couple times already this morning, but follow me. But the angel said to the women, those who arrived at the tomb and found it empty, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They encountered the risen Christ and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. An encounter with the risen Christ always produces worship. If your life isn't marked by worship, you haven't encountered the risen Christ, period. The third thing it produces is joy. Salvation, worship, and joy. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the source of our joy, our delight. Back to Psalm 119, he begins this great psalm with these words, happy are those 
whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who delight in his commandments, who seek him with their whole heart. A result of an encounter with the risen Lord is joy, happiness, peace, all the things that are connected to that. Psalm 119, verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. How can God's word be a delight to us unless God's Holy Spirit lives within us? Before the Holy Spirit lives within us, we have no interest in the, in the word of God. In fact, we resist it. We reject it. We recoil at it. But once the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of a human being, they begin to worship the Lord of the risen sepulcher, or the risen Lord of the sepulcher, and they begin to experience joy, regular joy. So where does your delight and joy in God's word come from? From the presence of the spirit of the risen one. He's in you, producing his joy. And he did this in the first believers. The first disciples who arrived at the tomb that I just read for you were overwhelmed with joy, verse 28. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy as they ran back to tell people about it. And then, of course, every other disciple since that time experiences joy. Jesus said in John 15 that he came to give us his joy. That's why he came. Divine joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. What things? Gospel things. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not half full. Not full when things are nice, but full. When you come to Jesus, friends, you are coming to the one who has made some very good promises that result in joy. He promised to forgive your sins. Does that bring joy? He promised to reserve a place for you in heaven. Does that bring joy? He promised to give us joy, which means we'll be joyful. <laughs> and you might say, well, I'm not sure I, I have that kind of joy. And I'd say, what? You don't have joy? Why don't you? Let's, let's investigate this for a little bit. Aren't your sins forgiven? Don't you have a place reserved for you in glory? Do you know the, the joy giver, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior? Isn't the Holy Spirit of God living within you? Maybe you don't have joy because you believed a false gospel. One that promised a life of ease and comfort, fixing all your problems. Is that what you came to when you came to Christ? Some person who didn't understand the gospel explained to you, if you just come to Jesus, your marriage will improve. If you just come to Jesus, you'll get a good job. If you just come to Jesus, you'll have nice things. Is that the gospel you bought into? That's why you don't have joy, <laughs> if you don't. It's no wonder. Jesus never promised ease, comfort, and to fix everything in your life. In fact, he promised the opposite, didn't he? Yes, he told us that the world would hate us if we followed him. He told us that we'd have tribulation if we followed him. He told us that we'd have to, on a daily basis, pick up a very heavy, uncomfortable wooden cross and follow him. But he also promised joy. 
You'll enjoy carrying your cross daily. No, friends, our joy doesn't come from a comfortable circumstance. Our joy doesn't come from being healthy, popular, and wealthy. Our joy, that, that is true joy, that thing that produces real deep joy, comes from our Savior, our risen Savior. Those things that only produce superficial joy are things that only remain, uh, well, the joy remains only as long as those things are intact. The minute that person, maybe it's you, loses comfort, health, popularity, whatever else that might bring you that superficial joy, evaporates the moment it's gone. The joy that Jesus offered and promised was an unshakable joy that survives the storms of life which include physical pain, poverty, ostracism, and shame. That's the kind of joy we're talking about. Jesus' joy is a divine joy that's dependent on his resurrection. And he's committed to making good on all of his promises, salvation, intimate worship, and joy. Friends, do you know the Savior? Do you know the risen Savior? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice at the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and at the presence of your Spirit, who brings the joy of our Savior to the brim of our life, fills us with lasting joy, real joy. We're so over overwhelmed with your abundant goodness towards us in Christ, our risen Savior, who, who brings us to a, a place of, of forgiveness of sin, of reconciliation with our Creator, with a life of joy and worship. God, I, I pray that today that, that we would exalt the name of our risen Lord and Savior and that it would last not just today, but tomorrow, the next day, and the rest of our lives. That we would look at life through the lens of a resurrected Savior. That all things that we encounter would remind us of his grace and goodness in drawing us to himself, of granting us that spiritual life that is based on his physical life. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful opportunity that you give us in the church year after year to think more closely on these important issues. And I do pray again that they would bleed out into our daily lives. And I exalt the goodness of your grace in Christ Jesus, our risen Savior.